Let us prepare our hearts and minds now as we read the scripture together. We'll be reading from Judges chapter 16, verses 23 to 31. You can follow along in your own Bibles or from the words on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate saying, our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God saying, our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid to waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel 20 years. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hi, I'm John, one of the High Rock pastors. We are almost done with summer school. How does that feel? And by summer school, I mean our summer school of prayer in which we come to Jesus seeking to learn how to pray. Today is a little different. We'll circle back to Jesus later, but we're starting with Samson, one of the most famous heroes in the entire Bible. He's one of only 16 heroes of the faith mentioned by name in a passage that many call the Hall of Heroes in Hebrews chapter 11. And he's the only one of the 16 to literally bring down the house. During the time when Israel first lived in the promised land, Samson was appointed by God as a judge to guide and protect Israel. Through the Holy Spirit, God gifted Samson with superhuman physical strength. But this strength came with a condition. As part of his special Nazarite vows, he could never cut his hair. Knowing just that fact, you can probably guess what happened to Samson for him to end up as a captive to the enemies of Israel, the Philistines. In the passage we just read, we hear Samson's final words, words that come out as a prayer. In front of a crowd of 3,000, this once great hero of Israel now stumbles around blindly for their perverse entertainment. After leaning against the central pillars of the Philistine temple, Samson pleads, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow 
get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And so in his death, Samson killed more enemies than in his entire life. But what kind of prayer is this? Isn't Samson supposed to be a hero of the faith? And, and why would God honor a prayer motivated explicitly by a desire for revenge? Is this how we are supposed to pray? Something is going on here. We'll need to look more closely, not just at Samson's death, but at his life. In the days of Samson, there was a problem. Yes, they lived under the oppression of the Philistines, but that wasn't the real problem. It was more like a symptom of the disease rather than the disease itself. The real disease was spiritual, and the diagnosis is mentioned several times in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Rather than listen to God's instructions, everyone lived by their own individual moral compass. They made their own judgments. They listened only to their own inner voice. They decided for themselves what was right and wrong. And anyone who said otherwise was a hater. To your own self be true and all that. But everyone doing what seemed right in their own eyes what was, is what had gotten them into trouble over and over again. They would follow God for a while, but then everything seemed to be good again, and they would ignore God and start doing whatever was right in their own eyes. Walking away from the protection of God, they inevitably invited disaster upon themselves. When the situation became really desperate, they would turn back to God, who would rescue them, often by sending a judge like Samson. And having been rescued by God, the people would once again be faithful for a while. But then in those good times, they would push God aside and return to doing what was ever right, whatever was right in their own eyes. Wash, rinse, repeat. It was a vicious cycle. And what's more, Moses had warned them about it in advance, saying, You shall not all do what we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. But that's not just Samson's world. It sounds a lot like our world, doesn't it? Personally, I'm struggling to think of anything I've ever done that didn't seem right in my own eyes at the time. Self-justification is remarkably easy. I feel like a huge part of parenting has been an effort to convince my kids that what seems right to them in the moment is going to lead to places they don't want to go. And honestly, we're all a lot more like our kids than we'd like to admit. I could list out examples, but I want to give each of you an opportunity to fill in the blanks. For just a moment, consider the ways that others have hurt you deeply because they were doing what was right in their own eyes rather than what is right in God's eyes. Think of the ways that they excused their actions. Think of how they justified themselves despite the pain that it caused you. As you consider the ways you have been hurt or neglected, consider the possibility, no, the inevitability, that you have hurt others in the same way. 
When our deepest truth is simply whatever is right in our own eyes, we are destined to wound one another with our self-centered short-sightedness. It's like when I'm in an argument with my wife and I get too angry too quickly because of some perceived slight or insult. Even if I'm right, I end up being wrong because I bring hurt instead of healing into a flammable moment. It seems right to call out what I see as disrespectful or unloving, while conveniently being blind to the way that my angry response is also disrespectful and unloving. When we do whatever is right in our own eyes, the ends always seem to justify the means. That's our world, and it was Samson's world. And Samson was in many ways no better than the people he was meant to lead and rescue. It was a case of the blind leading the blind. One of the biggest challenges for ancient Israel is that that they kept intermarrying with their pagan neighbors. Ethnicity wasn't the issue. In fact, many of the ancient heroes of faith were foreigners who worshipped the God of Israel, people like Caleb or Rahab and, and Ruth. The problem was one of faith, not ethnicity. As God had instructed them through Moses, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. In other words, marry someone with whom you can serve God together, not someone who will lead you away from God. Whatever character traits are on your list for the perfect partner, put faithfulness to God at the top of the list. Israel repeatedly failed to follow this instruction from God. Their insistence on marrying whomever seemed right in their own eyes led their people to abandon God over and over again until it eventually led to 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Against that backdrop, consider the first time we see Samson as an adult. Samson sees a beautiful woman, but she is a Philistine. He returns home and demands that his mother and father arrange for this woman to be his wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. In the literal Hebrew, Samson says, She is right in my eyes. Samson is just like the rest of Israel, doing whatever is right in his own eyes. It's the blind leading the blind. Samson didn't care what his parents said or even what God had said. If something or someone was right in his eyes, that was the end of the discussion. Right after this moment, we also witness the first display of Samson's miraculous strength as he kills an attacking lion with his bare hands hands. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. God is willing to act through Samson despite Samson's lack of faith and wisdom. But for all his amazing power, Samson is actually incredibly weak. His physical strength allows him to conceal his moral weakness. For all Samson is able to see, he's incredibly short-sighted, even blind. There are many other stories of Samson's strengths, 
He lifted off the gates of the city. He fights off an army with the jawbone of a donkey. We glorify those moments, but if you read through Samson's story, you'll see that most of these exploits are really just bouts of revenge. God gave him a gift so that Samson could help to free Israel from their Philistine oppressors. But Samson could only see his gift as something to be used for his own purposes, not God's. One of Samson's most famous exploits starts with these words. Samson said to them, This time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. And just in case they didn't catch him the first time, he repeats himself a few moments later. Samson said to them, Since you've acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. Is it any wonder that Samson's final words, his final prayer, are also a call for personal vengeance? Whatever served his own ego and appetites always managed to be what was right in Samson's eyes. But are we so different? What was right in Samson's eyes led him into more and more danger. Surprise, surprise, his marriage to the Philistine woman didn't last long. And after another scandalous fling, he finally meets Delilah, another Philistine woman, and falls madly in love. But Delilah doesn't truly love Samson. The Philistine leaders offer her a large fortune in silver to betray Samson. So she tries to discover the secret of Samson's strength. Three times he lies to her, and three times she shares what she knows to the Philistines so they can defeat Samson. But it doesn't work because Samson didn't reveal the true secret to his strength. Finally, Delilah takes a different approach. Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. Eventually, he caves and reveals his secret. If she were to cut his hair, he would be just as weak as any other man. Well, guess what? That's exactly what she did. How could he not see that coming? How could he be that blind? Delilah shaved his head while he slept, and the strength of the Lord left him. The Philistines quickly captured him, gouged out his eyes, and made the leader of Israel into a slave. Samson's moral weakness became physical weakness. His spiritual blindness became literal blindness. The man who lived for his own glory is turned into a spectacle for a perverse crowd as they watch this blinded and fallen hero stumble around in front of them as they mock him and his God. And Samson utters his final prayer. Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. With his hands placed against the temple columns, God answers Samson's prayer and he takes down the temple of Dagon and along with it, 3,000 of the Philistine oppressors of Israel. What are we supposed to learn from this? 
I believe the ultimate lesson of Samson's life is not contained within Samson's story alone. There is a larger picture that we have to see, and we have to attempt to see what God sees. God intended to free Israel from the Philistines, starting with Samson. And despite Samson's flaws and limitations, God did use Samson to strike a blow that eventually would lead to freedom. But what God chooses to do through us is sometimes in spite of what we do rather than because of it. For instance, I know many people who had wonderful parents whose parenting helped their children become godly, faithful adults. I have also known people who had terrible parents whose parenting also helped them become godly, faithful adults. You see, with God's help, those children vowed to do things differently. Now, in both cases, those people are who they are in large part because of their parents. Both stories are celebrations, but the second one is also a tragedy. And that's Samson's story, a tragedy. Yes, God's purposes are accomplished, but who knows what God could have done differently if Samson had done what was right in God's eyes rather than what was right only in his own eyes. Maybe we don't have to imagine. Samson's story points to a larger story in some incredible ways. Samson was actually born under miraculous circumstances. An angel of the Lord appeared to his mother and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. The angel also told her that this son would have a special purpose. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Almost a thousand years later, another child's miraculous birth was announced by an angel. This other child would not be born to a barren woman, but to a virgin through the power of the Holy Spirit. This promised child would free God's people, not just from human enemies, but from sin itself and even death. Should it be any surprise that this promised child would teach us a different way to pray? Perhaps the light of faith in Samson's prayer is, first of all, that he prays at all. Any, you know, after living a life in, where he does only what was right in his own eyes, he finally turns to God and cries out for God, who has been the source of his strength all along. After a life spent pursuing only what was right in his own eyes, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that he still cannot see beyond personal vengeance. But thankfully, God can and does work through flawed people like him, like us. But this promised child, Jesus, gives us a better vision of what life is meant to be. Rather than pursuing his own goals and desires, his own lusts and ego, he instead pursues, pursues God's will and purposes. He does what is right in God's eyes, not his, not his own. That's why we have been turning to Jesus all summer in order to learn how to pray. Now, despite all his physical strength, Samson was blind, weak, and small. But in a moment of what appears to be weakness, Jesus shows us an incredible, almost unimaginable strength. Many of the prayers of Jesus that we have examined are prayers that were prayed in his final days, before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. And rather than asking for revenge, we hear Jesus pray, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
Next week, we'll hear Pastor Wall talk about Jesus' prayer from John 17, where we see Jesus not focused on himself, but on his disciples and on us. But perhaps most importantly for today, and most in contrast with Samson, we have to consider how Jesus prayed in the Garden at Gethsemane. Three times, Jesus expresses his own desires, but each time he prays for God's will even more than his own. Mark's gospel tells us, going a little farther, Jesus fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus says, if possible, let this hour pass. Let me escape this terrible fate. That's what seems right in my eyes, says, he, says Jesus. But even more than that, I want what is right in your eyes. Not my will, but yours be done. That is what Jesus wants more than anything. Now that's a prayer. Samson prays for personal revenge. Jesus prays for universal redemption. Samson was blinded by a life spent in pursuit of what was right in his own eyes, so he literally does not know what to pray. Revenge is the best he can do, but his vision was also limited by his time and circumstances. But in Jesus, we can see, we can see a bigger picture, a clearer picture of what is right in God's eyes. Instead of revenge, we can pursue redemption. Samson's limited vision left him blind and in bondage. Jesus' vision of God's will can lead us to clarity and freedom. Samson's prayer leads to the death of 3,000 people. Jesus' prayer and the giving of the Holy Spirit leads to 3,000 people receiving eternal life. Here's what I'd like to suggest. When you pray, you might not know how to pray or what words to use, but you're probably pretty sure of what you want. God, heal my loved one. Lord, give me peace. Jesus, fix my finances. Grant me success. Don't get me wrong. We absolutely should tell God what we want. Jesus did. But that's often where we stop, and Jesus went much further. Jesus prayed to the Father, Here's what I want, but even more than that, I want what you want. Not my will, but yours be done. Here's what is right in my eyes, but what I really want is right in your eyes. A number of years ago, I was in a small group with pastors from other churches, and one of the other pastors, my friend Vinny, asked if I could, if, or if I would read Larry Crabb's Soul Talk, because he was finding it deeply challenging. And I'm so glad he invited me to read this book because it transformed the way that both of us prayed. Crab's main point is that our prayers lack power because we are too often praying for the wrong thing. We just want God to fix our problems. We want God to restore comfort and peace in our lives. Your mom is sick? We'll pray for God to heal your mom. Your boss is difficult? We'll pray for God to work on your boss. You have a stressful project or a test coming up? We'll pray for your peace and success. Whatever problem you face, we'll pray for God to fix it. I mean, sure, comfort, peace, and success are better prayers than Samson's prayer for revenge. 
But are we really engaging in Jesus' prayer for redemption? We're so focused on what is right in our own eyes that we often do not even think to pray for what is right in God's eyes. I remember when a good friend of mine from college, Nate Hoppe, shared how his wife Lynette was dying of cancer. They were praying for a miracle. They were missionaries in Albania with two young children. And like the paralyzed man who was lowered through the roof to see Jesus, they were praying that Jesus would tell Lynette to rise up and walk. But even more so, they were praying for the faith to praise God's name, even if he did not. They didn't just pray for what they wanted, what was right in their own eyes. They prayed for something even deeper, the faith to praise God no matter what happened. My wife Amy and I had to make that prayer our own many times with the medical struggles she and our family have faced. There is nothing wrong with comfort, peace, and success, but they fall far short of the kind of redemption that Jesus was praying for. So here's what I'm suggesting. First, recognize that we, like Samson, might have very limited vision. This summer we have been learning how to pray, but quite often we don't even know what to pray. Our vision can be limited by immaturity, by sin, lack of wisdom, or even just the pain of the moment. So once we acknowledge our own limited vision, what next? Well, second, because our own limited vision is there, ask others what we should pray. Maybe Samson didn't know what to pray for because he never saw any other way to pray. If you have others with spiritual maturity and vision in your life, don't just ask them to pray for you. Ask them to pray with you. Ask them what you should be praying for. Larry Crabb's book, Soul Talk, has a lot of helpful suggestions here. For instance, say a friend comes to me for prayer with their, for their sick mom. Sure, I'll pray for God to heal their sick mom and to bring her comfort and peace during this difficult time. But my main focus in prayer will be that God will use my friend to be a source of peace and comfort to their mom during this difficult time. I see this as an extension of how, God, of how Jesus prayed for redemption. He was willing to pay a price in order to bless others. Some of my favorite prayers in the Bible are ones where people are willing to be used by God as the answer to their own prayers. Their desire is to participate with what God desires to do for others. So, start with your own limited vision. And Samson is a great example of that. His vision was so limited that he was spiritually and later literally blind. But next, trust others to see what you cannot see. In the end, Samson may be more of a warning than an example, except that he does finally turn to God, however imperfectly. But I would love something better for us all. Ask what others, ask others what you should be praying for especially for how God can use you in redeeming the struggles and pains of others. That's my prayer, that God would use us all individually and as a body to bring about the loving redemption that is the heart of God's vision. Amen.